Thank you all so much. Please turn in your New Testaments to Luke 1, 67 through 79. In the New Testament, in Luke's Gospel, Christmas starts with a man named Zechariah. Uh, the songs of Christmas, the four that we'll be doing, I realize that Mary's song is first, but we've put them in order of when the, the angel came and when they come into the story, and Zechariah is first. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as we look at this scripture that you would open our heart to the music of the gospel and that Christmas would be beautiful because it's about your kingship in our hearts and your messiahship and the grace that we enjoy, get to live in and live out of for the good of other people in your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What happened to Zechariah was kind of like winning the lottery uh, for a minister. There were 24 divisions of priests in Israel. Uh, scholars maintain that there were about 18,000 priests operating in the nation of Israel at that time. And the way you got to give in Jerusalem the, the sacrifice of incense was by a lottery. It was by a drawing. Now, Zechariah was a country priest in a little backwoods kind of town way up in the Judean countryside. And he and his wife, Elizabeth, you know, you can just see they're, they're just those people that have served for decades. They're humble people that have just loved God and served in that small place for the longest time. And we learn in the first chapter of Luke that not only were they godly, well up in years, but they had a real hardship in their life. They had not been able to have children. Well, Zechariah's name was chosen out of the 18,000. He must have been in his late 70s or early 80s. This would be the only time that he'd get to go front and center in Jerusalem. He makes his way to that, that place. And um, we read in verse 8 of chapter 1. Please turn to, to Luke 1. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn the incense. And a whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And so at the right time, Zechariah and his big ministerial moment disappears into the temple. There's all these worshipers around the temple uh, they kind of know how long it takes to go in and do it. They're there all the time. The other priests, of course, know. It's very explicit instructions about how you go in, how you take the coals, light the thing, bring the incense, burn the incense, have a prayer of intercession for the people, and come back out. Except for one thing. Zechariah doesn't come back out. So the worshipers, they're wondering, I mean, maybe, he, you know, did he fall down? I mean, you know, Zechariah, he's 70-something, 80-something years old. What is wrong with Zechariah? And uh, finally he emerges out of the temple. And he has this strange look on his face. And he can't speak. Because something did happen. At the right side of the altar of incense, Zechariah's big moment ministerially was just kind of taken over by another big moment, a big moment in history, actually, that the Jews had been waiting for century upon century, and it's happening right now. Look at verse 11. 
there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled and he fell, excuse me, troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. I guess so. There's not supposed to be anybody in there but God and you're going to do this thing and suddenly greetings right there by the right side of the altar of incense and who is this but gabriel you know gabriel like the messenger from god when god has something really important to say like he's going to send gabriel to a virgin in nazareth there is gabriel he is zechariah is terrified and look it had been over 400 years without any word from heaven for the Jews. 400 years, we don't have any recorded miracles. 400 years, no prophets. That's a long period of time. And suddenly, there is Gabriel. Verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Listen to this. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you will call his name John. And you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink, drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. It's a very special child. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, the Messiah. He will go before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah says, My Elizabeth? My Elizabeth's going to have a son? Yep. You know how old we are? We've qualified for our senior citizen discounts a long time ago. Probably in their 70s or 80s. And you know what? He did not believe the angel. And because he did not believe, he suddenly was struck mute. And he could not speak at all. You know, he didn't believe. But I'm going to tell you something. Christmas isn't about conventional wisdom. What we're going to learn in Advent and what we're going to learn in the Christmas story is Christmas is about what is new breaking in. It is about God breaking into this world and all the possibilities you could have not dreamed of the love of God and nearness of God and, and all that God wants to do in your lives and through your lives. Christmas is about the supernatural breaking in. And that is what is happening here with Zechariah. I love Gabriel's response. Verse 19. Hands on hip, Gabriel. I am Gabriel. You don't believe me? I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to bring you this good news. And behold, because you didn't believe me, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And right then and there, whoop, Zechariah's mouth is closed and he will not utter a word for nine months. That killed me not to utter a word for nine minutes, but for nine months. So, Zechariah goes home to the Judean hills and 
You know, we, we think, well, maybe he felt chastened. He didn't feel chastened. You know why? Because Gabriel promised the son to him, and as soon as he went mute and couldn't talk, he knew it was true. Because Gabriel's power, the power of God to shut his mouth, convinced him of everything that Gabriel had said to him. So he, he couldn't wait to get home and scribble on a pad, you're going to have a baby, sweetheart. <laughs> Me? <laughs> yes, you. Um, he is not chastened. He is so thrilled. And you know who came and saw them during the nine months, don't you? It was Elizabeth's cousin, much, much, much younger. In fact, a, a, a late or middle teenager. Her name was Mary. She was from Nazareth. She was the son of Joseph. She was having a little social stigmata problems up in Nazareth. And, uh, and so she went because she was pregnant before marriage by the Holy Spirit she goes and she spends time with Elizabeth and Zechariah. He's got lots of time to read his Bible. And there's this wonderful story. You can read all about it later when, when uh, Jesus in the womb of Mary enters the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth. John the Baptist is in the womb of Elizabeth. And he just leaps because that's why he's come forth. To recognize Jesus and, and to be the one that will go ahead of Jesus. He's got a lot of time to read his Old Testament and I tell you, when his mouth was finally opened, something poured out of his mouth that was so much like an Old Testament psalm. A psalm of praise that God had been forming for all those nine months. Finally, Elizabeth gave birth to this little boy. And on the eighth day, you know what they did, did on the eighth day? We allow people to have their children baptized a little bit later after the eighth day. We, we fudge on that a little bit. But on the eighth day... Uh, this child was bought, brought to the temple and they had what they referred to as the naming ceremony. It was the father's responsibility to name the child. The priest said, what is this child's name going to be? And John can't talk. And so Elizabeth says, his name is going to be John. Now, they're in a little bitty town up in the hill country. Everybody knows everybody's business. They're like, who's John? I mean, I, you know, Zach Jr., we get there's nobody in this family named John. Why are they naming this child John? And, and Zechariah holds his hand up and wants a tablet. And he gets a tablet and he writes. You can go read all this in the text. His name is John. And immediately when he writes, his name is John, his tongue is loosed. And what flows out is what we call the, the song of Zechariah. Or as it is known popularly, the the benedictus, the word benedictus in Latin means blessing or blessed, comes from the first line of Zechariah's song, blessed is the Lord. So, finally, let's read our text. Let's read the benedictus or the song of Zechariah. Luke 1 and 67, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited us and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. That we should be saved from our enemies. From the hand of all those who hate us. To show us the mercy promised to our fathers. And to be, remember his holy covenant. The oath 
he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we may, being delivered from the hands of our enemy, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then he shifts this song and addresses John the Baptist. And you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. This song has three verses. They're very easy. And if you can remember these three verses, you've got Zechariah's song. They are, verse 1, a new David. Verse 2, will be introduced by a new Elijah. Verse 3, and it will be the sunrise of grace. A new David will be introduced by a new Elijah. And it will be the sunrise of grace. Zechariah praised God For a new David. For a new David. God, he says, will raise up a horn of salvation in the house of David. Now, what's this horn of salvation thing? That's a really um, popular Old Testament metaphor. The the horn of salvation, the, the idea of a horn. Think of a bull's horn. It's a symbol of power. It's a symbol of overwhelming, overpowering victory. And so this is a salvation that cannot be stopped. A horn of salvation in the house of David just as he spoke through, the, just as God spoke through the prophets. Now, what I'd like to do is take you back to the place in the Old Testament where God spoke and show you how the house of David is important and why the house of David is important to the Israelites. So turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you don't mind, David, of course, was the, um, the, the most popular king in Israel. It was under David, the man after God's own heart, that, that Israel was able to consolidate power, to form its borders, to build a palace, to be recognized as a formidable country among the nations. I do realize, as many of you do, that when David passed the kingdom off to his son Solomon, it did grow. And and in the early days of Solomon, there was an expansion of Israel. But it was through Solomon and his idolatry and his foreign wives that uh, the kingdom became split. And then the kingdom went away. And so they would always look back with most nostalgia, even with all David's problems, on the kingship of David. We need another David. We're under Roman oppression now. We need another David. Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's this wonderful moment where David has been so blessed by God. And he has been militarily victorious. Now he's able to, to put kind of roots down. He's able to build a palace. He builds a palace. He's sitting there in his brand new palace. And he says to himself, I am in a brand new palace. God has been so good to me. And God is still worshipped in a tent. There's something wrong with this picture. So David loves God. And David goes to the prophet Samuel and he says, Look, something's not right here. I am in a cedar-hewn, beautiful palace. And God is still worshipped 
in a tent. And Samuel said, he goes, I want to build a temple for God, for, for the name of God to dwell in. You know, the, the tabernacle that, that was formed during the exodus out in the wilderness. I mean, that thing must have been pretty dog-eared by now, you know? I mean, I'm sure they took great care of it. So Samuel says, go ahead and do what you want to do. And then God visits Samuel and God says, you didn't consult me about that. I've got a message for David and I want you to give this message for David. And this is what we call the Davidic covenant. This is where in scripture that we understand that the throne of David will be an eternal throne and the Messiah will come from that eternal, from, from David and sit on that throne. So God says to David, one of, the, one of the greatest kind of play on words in the Bible. God's good with words. God says this, you will not build my house, but I will build your house. God's not referring to a house of stone. He's referring to David's household. You will not build my temple. You will not build my house, but I will build your house. If you'd like to look at Verse 11 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Lord declares to you, Samuel's passing this message, that's what prophets do, they represent God to the people. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you, David, a house. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build my house for my name. And I will establish the throne of that kingdom forever. Who is that? That's Solomon, who actually got to build the temple. Verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And right there and then, God's people knew that the Messiah would come from the line of David. Right there and then, they knew that there would be a new David one day that would come, a greater David who wouldn't just sit on an earthly throne, but would sit on a throne forever and rule over the cosmos forever. And you know, Jesus is not only the Son of God, He's the Son of who? He's the Son of David. And as we enter this Advent, one of the first things we can say is, is, is He is reigning right now on that Davidic throne, on His throne, in the throne room of God. And we are saved by Him and by His work on the cross on our behalf to be able to serve Him without fear, to know Him, to be loved by Him, to be able to walk after Him. Look at verse 68 of our text. Luke 1, 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and redeemed His people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, just as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old. That we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of those who hate us, to show mercy, the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore initially to our father Abraham, to grant that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear and in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Interestingly, the song of Zechariah is not about his son John. It's about Jesus. It's about salvation that is coming right now. 
But the second verse is about John. Remember the first verse? A new David. Second verse will be introduced by a new Elijah. The angel in the temple that day when, when Zechariah encountered Gabriel talked to Zechariah about what this child would actually be like. And this is what he said. This child will be special. This child has a mission. Luke 1.16, that John the Baptist would, quote, turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and that he would go before the Messiah, hear these words, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Why Elijah? Because Elijah was the greatest prophet in Israel. On the Mount of Transfiguration in the New Testament, when when two figures from the Old Testament came back and the, the disciples, the apostles, saw them, who were they? The law and the prophets, the representatives, Moses and Elijah. This child will be a new Elijah in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And now Zechariah sings this second verse. Go back to our text, verse 76. Thanks for hanging with me. These are narratives. We've got to stick with it, right? Second verse is, and you, my child. You see, he is singing this psalm. He turns to his own son. You, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. You know what Zechariah knows? Zechariah knows that this child that has just been born to his wife is none other than the trigger for the coming of the Messiah to begin, for the earthly ministry and the power of the Messiah to be brought from heaven into this world. That John the Baptist is the trigger. He was a prophet. In fact, Jesus said, did he not? He is the greatest of all the prophets. He was the last Old Testament prophet. What do prophets do? They speak from God. They tell what's going to happen. They interpret the world according to the word of Yahweh. He is the last and greatest Old Testament a prophet. He is a new Elijah, but he is greater than Elijah because he himself, in time and space, at the Jordan River, will personally and publicly introduce and point out the Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God. Right there. What a moment. After all that longing and waiting. Behold the Lamb of God right there who takes away the sins of the world. And after 400 plus years of silence from God, after all that longing, and the longing in the heart of Zechariah and Elizabeth for salvation to come, John the Baptist is the missing key, the missing piece that God will snap into place so that the entire salvation of God through Messiah can happen. It's not going to happen without John the Baptist. We're, it, John the Baptist is that last piece that happens that points everybody to Jesus as the Messiah. He's the trigger. 
And this is what Zechariah knows. Once that trigger is pulled, nobody can stop the son of David who will rule on his throne. Nobody can stop the salvation of his people. Nobody can stop the deliverance from the enemies of God. Nobody can stop the forgiveness of sins and the ability to walk with God and serve him without fear. That's what Zechariah knows. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a TV show that I've seen. Now, you've got you to gotta, pardon me. I've only seen about 25 minutes. Twi- it's kind of like around Monday Night Football. And I can't remember if it's during or after. Um, the games haven't been that good. But it's called Revolution. Have any of y'all seen Revolution? Revolution's a kind of a cool show. I'm not, usually not into like post-apocalyptic type shows. But um, let, me, let me explain to you a little bit uh, what, what's going on in the show Revolution, at least from, from my ability in, in 20-minute snippets to... It's not hard to figure out what's going on in Revolution. Um, in the show Revolution, somebody was able to turn all of the electricity off in the whole world. And the, and the world is plunged into darkness, and there's no light, there's no power, there's no ability, electric power, and so anarchy breaks out. And all these militias are fighting for control, and, and one particular man, General Monroe, who is the evil general, uh, really has this um, Republic of Monroe. Um, he is, he is the, the, the evil person there, except... For one thing, this darkness that covers the world, there's this locket. Kind of sounds like Tolkien's ring, doesn't it? There's this, this pendant, the locket of power. No one quite knows yet. Of course, I hadn't seen the last couple, but no one quite knew yet how the locket of power works. But we do know this, watching even 35 minutes of revolution. We know that whoever possesses the locket of power can turn the power back on for their purposes and destroy anybody in their path. That is why General Monroe will not stop until he gets the locket and is able to click, put that thing in place, and nobody can stop him from destroying anybody in his path. What's that got to do with John the Baptist? John the Baptist is the last prophet. And he is that peace that God will click into place. And once it is in place, nobody can stop God from saving the world. You see, it's just the opposite, but more powerful than any any warlord on any TV show. He is the trigger. Verse 26, and you, excuse me, 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High and you will go before the Lord, you will prepare His way to give knowledge and salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. And that is exactly what John did. He went out to the Jordan River and he preached repentance of sin and salvation on the Christ that he would point out. Once John the Baptist is on the scene, this, this process of God redeeming, God invading the world from heaven has begun and no one can reverse it. It is only three months after this scene that Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem. Oh, come, let us adore him. See, a big part of the song of Zechariah is, is the long-awaited salvation and the fact that nobody can stop God. Blessed that a horn of salvation 
has been raised up in the house of David to save us from our enemies, to save us from our sins. And you, my child, you are the last piece. And Zechariah knows that the process has begun. Wow. So there's a new David introduced by a new Elijah. And then finally, he says it will be the sunrise of grace. Verse 78, and and this is such beautiful language. The sunrise shall visit us from on high. Oh, we learned that the sunrise is a person. Isn't that incredible? The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Doesn't that sound familiar? I think that uh, y'all read that earlier, Mitchell, that uh, on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. I love the word sunrise, not just because it, it has to do with light like God and warmth and grace, but you know what? Tomorrow morning, nobody here can stop the sunrise. You can't stop the sun from rising. And you cannot stop the sunrise from heaven from redeeming. Not even your sin. Not even your sin, whatever it is. You say, yeah, but you don't know my sin. Well, I want you to know, maybe you don't know the power of the sunrise who visited us. And took care of that sin. Wouldn't it be great this, this, this first Sunday of Advent. If you were able to look through the, the, the light filled telescope of Zechariah's song. And say you know what? There is hope. I can take my sin to God. I can know God. Be loved by God. And serve Him without fear. You can't stop the sunrise. And it gives light to all that are in darkness. And it gives light and life to all those who sit in death. It is the rising of the smile of God on our hearts. You put your trust in Jesus. As we're about to go to this table. I want you to say, when that that sun rises, when when it rises, when you see the beauty of the gospel, it is the rising of the smile of God upon your heart. It is the warming It is the warming of sinners who continually need God's love and grace. And it is always provided, initially, certainly, by faith to to have salvation. But every day, it is the rising of the smile of God on our hearts. Jesus is called the sunrise. So, we begin with Zechariah's song. What are the three verses? A new David will be introduced by a new Elijah... And it will be the sunrise of grace. The table set before us is a symbol of the sunrise of grace and a sunrise that has never set and will never set. And what I'd like to do in approaching this table this morning is I would like to read to you and just read and we'll go to communion the third verse of the great Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. This is S-U-N, by the way, in the song. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. 
Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the sunrise who has visited, that even as Zechariah said that you had visited and redeemed, it was, this, it was a done deal. Because of your mighty power and unstoppability, would you help us, would you shred away our unbelief and help us to see yet again that we can turn to you? Would you cause your people, even as we approach your table, to turn to you and to cling to you And receive the grace and love and forgiveness and nearness that only comes through Jesus. And we pray in his holy name. Amen. Let's stand.